and I was just intrigued by Anselm. I, I, I grew up in evangelical churches. I'd never really been exposed to medieval theology. I probably had the, the view that I now see as more of a caricature, that it was the Dark Ages. Um, you know, there's nothing valuable from that time period. But there was just something different about Anselm that um, was intriguing. I always think about the quote from Mr. Holland's opus where he's, he talks about how he came to love jazz music and he says, at first I couldn't stand it, then I couldn't, couldn't stop listening to it, and then finally I knew what I wanted to do with my life. And it was that same progression of just utterly perplexed, this is so different, I, I don't know, I don't have categories for this, and then through that kind of becoming fascinated by it. So he uh, he drew me in, and then he became the focus of my, my formal academic research after that. Does doctrine really matter? The Apostle Paul once wrote to a young pastor named Titus, instructing him to hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Welcome to Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. Here's your host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, Executive Editor of Credo Magazine and Associate Professor of Christian Theology at Midwestern Seminary. Welcome to the Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters. I am Matthew Barrett, your host. Did you know that when I first founded Credo Magazine and uh, more recently the podcast itself, I chose that word Credo with, well, great purpose and intention. In fact, if we were to say it in the Latin, we might say credo, which communicates this simple but profound statement, I believe. Perhaps you've even heard, depending on who you've read in church history, perhaps you've even heard that phrase, a very famous phrase, I believe in order to understand. In many ways, that phrase captures so much about what this podcast is even about. But did you know that that phrase actually can be traced back to one of my favorite medieval thinkers, Anselm? Anselm is not only a profound philosophical thinker, as many kind of categorize him, but he's also a profound theological thinker. And he's also, believe it or not, one who uh, is very familiar with the texts of Scripture as so many theologians and philosophers were during his day. But Anselm is one that I love to draw people's attention to. In fact, to this very day, I love to assign Anselm in my classes, uh, my theology classes. I love to recommend recommend Anselm to so many churchgoers that I uh, bump up against, whether they're thinking about the doctrine of God or the Incarnation. But when we think about Anselm's entire contribution and even his legacy, I must say that it's a bit of a shame that Anselm is often caricatured. Uh, he begins uh, his proslogion with this very rich statement about the existence of God, or what others have uh, called the ontological argument for God. But did you also know he said so, so much more? He not only spoke of God as someone than whom none greater can be conceived as the, the perfect being, but he goes on to describe so many of God's perfections, his incomprehensibility, his eternality, his immutability. In fact, Anselm has quite a bit to say also about, well, God's simplicity and what simplicity has to do with Trinity. But what I usually find is that most Christians out there, 
sometimes even those who have read Anselm never pay attention to the way Anselm, well, the way he describes God through the means of a prayer. And not only through a prayer, but how Anselm drives us to what he calls joy or the fullness of joy, or as Augustine, uh, as he referred to long before Anselm, the happy life. In other words, Anselm is not just a theologian, and Anselm not only brings us to the doctrine of God, but Anselm does so with an eye towards, well, the Christian life and what it means for our existence, not just God's, but our existence, to think of our existence in light of, well, the fullness of this heavenly bliss, Anselm, well, a bliss he so cherishes and wants you to understand. In order to understand Anselm better, I've asked Gavin Ortland to come on the Credo podcast and to discuss Anselm, especially since Gavin has actually written a book recently on Anselm, and believe it or not, he's written it as a Protestant. Gavin Ortland is pastor of First Baptist Church of Ojai in Ojai, California. He has his PhD from Fuller Theological Seminary. And he's published a number of books lately, including Theological Retrieval for Evangelicals, as well as Finding the Right Hills to Die On. Uh, And some of his other books include Retrieving Augustine's Doctrine of Creation. And of course, I have to mention this one, Anselm's Pursuit of Joy. Gavin, thank you so much for joining me on the, the Credo Podcast. Hey, thanks for having me, Matthew. I think it's appropriate if we start off with a quote uh, from Anselm, and I think you'll know where this is from, uh, but let me just start off with a quote because this will set us up really to understand Anselm's method. He says this, and he says it in the form of a prayer. He says, I acknowledge, Lord, and I give thanks that you have created your image in me so that I may remember you, think of you, love you, but this image is so effaced and worn away by vice, so darkened by the smoke of sin that it cannot do what it was made to do unless you renew it and reform it. I do not try, Lord, to attain your lofty heights because my understanding is in no way equal to it, but I do desire to understand your truth a little, that truth that my heart believes and loves. And then Anselm says this, for I do not seek to understand so that, I, so that I may believe, but I believe so that I may understand. For I believe this also, that unless I believe, I shall not understand. Gavin, I imagine you're familiar with this quote, and I, I wanted to start uh, with this quote in particular because I think you will agree that uh, oftentimes Anselm well, when he's brought up in discussions, whether they're theological discussions or philosophical discussions, sometimes he's painted as a rationalist. But in your recent work on Anselm, you actually argue something very different. How so? Yeah, this is one of the things that I noticed when I got into the secondary literature on Anselm, that it's almost monotonous how many people um, approach him in terms of this contrast between faith and reason, and they say, look, in, in some passages, like the one that you just read from the end of Prologion chapter 1, uh, Anselm seems to prioritize faith as the starting point for theology. In other passages, like the first chapter of the Monologion, which was a kind of 
prequel of sorts to the Proslogion, he says that he's operating by reason alone. And people see the tension and sometimes even a contradiction in that. And I have taken the view and made the argument that when he says by reason alone, he's not trying to exclude faith. But the word alone um, is not excluding faith, but rather the citation of authorities. So, you know, Anselm lived from 1033 to 1109. Um, he's kind of right at the start of the what we call the High Middle Ages. But the, the common practice for theological writing and theological arguing uh, in the early Middle Ages was uh, really focused upon quoting authorities. You know, sometimes you'd have arguments where it would just be a... a, a battery of quotations from the church fathers and from scripture and whoever has more quotes <laughs> seems to win the argument. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Anselm is, is departing from that. And he's saying, I'm going to argue by reason alone. That is, I'm not going to just cite authorities, but he's, that doesn't mean he's going to leave faith aside. So I just argue that Anselm's, um, emphasis upon reason and his emphasis upon faith are actually harmonious. Mm. And for Anselm as a medieval monk, Reason was a spiritual activity. Reason and rationality and spirituality uh, flowed together. Uh, reason was a tool of faith. And so uh, I think he was consistent in his uh, theological method. And I, I, I do think it's unhelpful how, how frequently he's portrayed as though he's sort of um, speaking in two different ways at different times. I, I think in his context, faith and reason were not alternatives. Mm. Now, for some of our listeners, they may know something about Anselm, perhaps they've, they've heard all kinds of different things, maybe even some caricatures like the one you just addressed, but uh, perhaps they've never read Anselm for, the, for themselves, let alone his proslogion. Uh, could you maybe set Anselm in his medieval context and uh, talk to us a little bit about uh, not just who Anselm is, but um, maybe some of his his own contribution that we have with us to this day. Okay. Well, as I mentioned, he lived in uh, 11th century uh, into the early 12th century. Uh, he was uh, born in northern Italy. He lived most of his life in France at a monastery in, in Beck, and then he ended up in England as the Archbishop of Canterbury. So most of his life was spent as a monk, and that affected his uh, theology profoundly. Some of his first works were written as uh, kind of the overflow of his theological discussions with the other monks, and they're begging him to write these things down that he's talking to them about. And um, he's probably famous for two things. One is what you mentioned, the ontological argument for God's existence. The other would probably be his uh, treatment of the atonement, and what's sometimes called the satisfaction view of the atonement in his book, Why the God-Man. Um, but there's so much more to mm -hmm. him than just those two points. So it'll be fun to get into that a little bit here. Now, now tell me, because, you know, I have my own story about how I sort of stumbled onto Anselm uh, a bit accidentally and then just couldn't put him down. Um, when you look back, uh, I mean, you've obviously written on Anselm now, but uh, when you look back over your own uh, theological education, and your own reading, and and those who were even teaching you theology. What what point did you first come across Anselm, and and what was that like? 
Well, I, I remember it pretty vividly. I think I talk <laughs> about this in the uh, theological retrieval book. Um, I, I'd gotten my hands on an on a contemporary state. I think it was an Alvin Plantinga article um, that was stating the ontological argument, and he referenced Anselm in that article, and I found that argument so interesting and so bizarre, and I just remember thinking, I. Surely you can't prove that God exists from the mere idea of God. Surely you can't go from the idea to the reality like that. But I couldn't figure out what was wrong with the argument. And it just sort of intrigued me. So that led me to Anselm. And then I had kind of a second layer of fascination because what I discovered in Anselm is not only is there this fascinating argument, but there's so much more going on in the book in which that argument comes, the Proslogion. Um, it's all a prayer uh, patterned after Augustine's confessions, and that argument actually takes up just three of the 26 chapters in the book at the beginning, and um, the argument keeps going to prove many other things. In fact, really, I would say the entirety of his doctrine of God. So, um, And I was just intrigued by Anselm. I, I, I grew up in evangelical churches. I'd never really been exposed to medieval theology. I probably had the the view that I now see as more of a caricature, that it was the Dark Ages. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's nothing valuable from that time period. But there was just something different about Anselm that um, was intriguing. I always think about the quote from Mr. Holland Opus, where he's, he talks about how he came to love jazz music, and he says, at first I couldn't stand it, <laughs> then I couldn't couldn't stop listening to it. Oh. And then finally, I knew what I wanted to do with my life. Yeah. <laughs> it was that same progression of just utterly perplexed. This is so different. I, I don't yeah. know. I don't have categories for this. And then through that kind of becoming fascinated by it. Yeah. So he, uh, he drew me in and then he became the focus of my, my formal academic research <laughs> after that. You know, it's so, it's so uh, funny you mentioned that uh, my story is not all that different. And, uh, you know, even, even when I assign uh, Anselm to my students, I find they have a similar experience. At first, uh, it, it's almost as if they've entered into a totally strange world and they, they have no idea what to make of it. Here's this prayer uh, in his proslogion. Here's, here's this theologian praying, uh, and yet it's not like any prayer they've heard before. It's a it's a very theological prayer. It's a prayer that takes them into the deep things of God, even to the very existence of God. And then from there, it's a prayer that makes the sharp turn towards even topics like joy in the Christian life or what vision of God is going to be like and so on. So I have found that uh, often those who come into contact with Anselm, well, they are at first a bit surprised, maybe even a bit shocked some some are even a bit put off but then as they start to read further it it's like a like a warm bath they just start to sink into it and enjoy it more and more now you have been reading Anselm for many years now and uh, i think that your latest book on Anselm here is uh, not only helpful in correcting some of those characters that we mentioned at the beginning but it's also a very helpful commentary uh, guiding the interested reader through Anselm's Proslogion. 
not just to understand what he's saying, but to also push back against uh, some of the interpretations of Anselm from the past and, and some of the mo- more recent past. Now, that said, it, it doesn't take long, especially if you know the, the student or the, the interested pastor churchgoer out there starts to investigate all this. It doesn't take long for them to realize that well, there's a whole slew of individuals who, who really have it out for Anselm. And, and when they, they, they think of what's bad and, and theology, they, they blame Anselm for it. Now, some of that has to do with the way that they uh, interpret Anselm. They believe that, say, Anselm is setting faith and reason over against each other. And you mentioned a minute ago about just his motives and his medieval context in which he's writing this proslogion. But maybe could you elaborate just a little bit and, and help us understand uh, why, why is it the case that Anselm uh, feels so comfortable kind of interacting and going back and forth on, on subjects like faith and reason? So that he can, he not only begins his proslogion with this statement, I believe, in order to understand, but then can even turn to, well, our, our own pursuit of, of happiness in the Christian life. Mm. Well, I think this would be probably the greatest thing that I take away from Anselm, or at least one of them, and that is um, things that are disconnected and divorced for us in the modern West— for Anselm as a medieval monk, they were all of one piece. And that would be true, I, I just to just put it in terms of three categories. If we think of theology, uh, philosophy, and spirituality, all of those are running together for Anselm in ways that they tend to be more disconnected for, for us in the, in the modern world. So if you read the Prologion. You know, it's always interesting if you take a like a history of philosophy class and you're covering medieval philosophy, by and large, it's kind of the same people as you'd study in a medieval theology class. And uh, <laughs> a lot of these great theologians were philosopher theologians. Mm. And that's really interesting to me because my current research is about apologetics. And one of the convictions that's been growing in me is that uh, theologians need to study philosophy. Philosophers need to study theology. Amen. There's da- <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, there, there's dangers that happen when um, we uh, divorce these different disciplines. Those things ran together for Anselm. And then also, as you mentioned, his interest in joy. This is the great emphasis of my book. And what led me to interpret the book in this way, what I'm basically arguing is the book's um, driving, animating interest is not proving that God exists. So he does have a particular joy in the discovery of that wing of the argument. But the argument itself isn't doesn't actually end with that. I think Anselm's term, one, the one argument that he discovers that leads him to write this book as a replacement for the earlier monologian. The argument itself is simply the name of God that he has, which is that in which nothing greater can be thought. And out of that name, he, he unfolds not only the entire doctrine of God, but then the implications of that for the human soul. And that's where the book ends with this awesome vision of heaven. And if anyone is listening to this wanting just to to say, well, give me one place to start off reading. I'd encourage them to read the Proslogion, but especially uh, with an alertness to chapter 25 and his vision of heaven, 
where he, he talks about love as multiplying the joy of heaven because we will obey the golden rule perfectly. So I'll be just as happy at my neighbor's happiness as my own and uh, vice versa with them towards me. And that, that will be multiplied among all the saints and angels and with God's happiness as well. And I'd never thought about heaven like that, but it's really a beautiful vision. So I love how Anselm can help us see ways that um, uh, theology, philosophy, the, the intellectual world as a whole um, can can be and should be um, put together with spirituality and and even the deepest longings of the human heart. You know, our, our, to our listeners who perhaps they've never read Anselm before, um, I know not only would echo what you just said and uh, encourage them to to pick up uh, Anselm's Proslogion, which. Uh, they may be surprised to find out is a very, very short work. So, you know, there's different additions uh, to, to Anselm they may want to read. Uh, one of them is uh, the Oxford World's Classics in which you have in just one, one volume, really, Anselm's major works. But uh, they may be surprised to discover that the Proslogion, at least in this edition, is but, I think, 20 pages long, which is absolutely remarkable that here you have one of the most profound works, uh, theological works, uh, philosophical works, and as you just pointed out, a work that has much to do with uh, the theologian's vision of um, the Christian life and and really the life to come. Here in just 20 pages, you have uh, a, a work that has really set the trajectory and you know, if we were to say that, you know, every theologian after Augustine, well, must interact with Augustine, uh, I think we could say something similar has happened with Anselm, uh, both his Proslogion as well as some of his other works on the Incarnation. Now, that said, I, I do want to get to that climactic point that you just mentioned. Uh, but before we do so, perhaps you could help our listeners out and this would be a great way to encourage them to read Anselm for themselves, but help them out here and just walk them through the Proslogion. And let's begin, we'll, we'll take it in three stages here. Let's begin with chapters one through four. What is Anselm, what is he uh, writing and even praying about in chapters one through four? Okay, I'll, I'll launch into this and just cut me off if I go on too long okay. here. <laughs> Because, uh, you know, my, my book is basically a commentary on the Proslogion, so I've really, it was really fun to give a close, sustained textual analysis and really get into the weeds with a particular text. So I've got lots to say about it, but to try to just give the, the snapshot, um, chapter one is the lengthiest chapter of the book. It's, uh, well, the whole book is a prayer, but chapter one is a particularly urgent prayer. There's sort of these emotional peaks within the book. Um, it's, it really does feel like Augustine's confessions in some respects. Yeah. Um, the, so it's sort of like an invocation or something, and some is basic, and the, the basic content, to boil it down, is he's saying, Lord, my soul was created to see you. That's the point of my existence. Um, because of sin, I have not achieved that purpose, and therefore I'm in anguish and misery. Um, please let me 
uh, do what I was created to do. Let me see you. And that's basically what he's praying, which is so interesting. And it sets up the whole rest of the book. That's one of the reasons I think there's much more going on here than an argument for God's existence, because um, uh, a mere argument for God's existence doesn't really answer that that prayer. Um, and then chapters two through four, he gets into the, the famous ontological argument. Oftentimes, uh, chapter two is categorized as the argument proper. Chapter three, it, it's very interesting. It's kind of a second argument where he's arguing for God's necessary existence. And that's one of the things I try to really emphasize in the book is that for Anselm, if God merely existed in the way that other things exist, it would do him no good whatsoever. Mm-hmm. He's only interested in a God who has, who in fact possesses existence and has, uh, and cannot even be imagined not to exist. So chapters three and four kind of extend the argument in that way. Now let's move on to chapters five through twenty-two because uh, here he he really starts to get into some of the specifics. You know, some have have uh, labeled this description Anselm's description of God as God is the the perfect being, and while that may you know sound a bit uh, you know foreign to some, uh, here Anselm starts to flesh out well what what type of perfections are we referring to when we talk about God. What does that look like for Anselm in chapters 5 through 22? Mm -hmm. Well, this middle section of the book I regard to be one of the best treatments of theology proper or the doctrine of God that I've ever read. Mm. Um, It's really fascinating. So broadly speaking, chapters 5 through 13 are trying to harmonize seeming uh, inconsistencies between different attributes of God. Uh, Chapter 14 is another prayer. So um, I I think there's actually, you mentioned how short of a book it is. I think Anselm wrote this book very deliberately, and Mm. and he crafted it very carefully. So I do think it's likely that he's very thoughtful about, and, and the chapter divisions do go back to Anselm himself. So chapter 14, of course, is halfway through the book. And so you can look at the book as having um, a four-chapter introduction and conclusion, and then that middle body. You can also look at it as having two 13-chapter halves. Um, but at chapter 14, he basically pauses and says, um, he's talking to his own soul, and he says, have you found what you're looking for? And his answer is basically no. Yeah. Um, for all the progress he's made in proving that God exists and that his attributes are harmonious, he still hasn't found the, the longings of his soul. So chapters 15 to 22, he's sort of ascending further upwards into the divine nature, and he's really emphasizing God's transcendence and God's uniqueness. So divine simplicity, which you mentioned earlier, comes up throughout the book. I think there's four chapters where it's uh, uh, really emphasized that God is simple. That's really important for him. And it's interesting because as he's progressing toward what the medievals called the beatific vision, that is the soul's uh, sight of God in heaven, he's emphasizing more and more just how incomprehensible God is. And somehow in his very transcendence, Anselm is sort of making progress and getting to that point. So um, it's a very a very fascinating treatment of and, and divine eternity is emphasized a great deal in those later chapters. So it's a great treatment of 
um, various attributes of God, all with this larger aim of how God is the fulfillment of the longings of the soul. Mm. Now, when we turn towards the very end of his proslogion, chapters 23, 25, and 26, again, they're short, but here Anselm uh, not only draws out the implications for what he's said, but he really turns a corner. I think it, it in many ways it's assumed throughout each chapter, but here he turns a corner and becomes very explicit and clear about how this 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 God of all these perfections, how this God then uh, should be really the center and the driving force of what he calls joy itself. I, I want to read to you, uh, there's so many passages to choose from. Uh, you know, in my, my copy, I'm, I've pretty much got the whole thing circled and underlined and, and boxed in. But this is towards the very end in chapter 26. And he, he begins to end this way. He says, I pray, O God, that I may know you and love you, so that I may rejoice in you. And if I cannot do so fully in this life, may I progress gradually until it comes to fullness, that the knowledge of you grow in me here and there in heaven be made complete. Let your love grow in me here and there be made complete, so that here my joy may be great in hope and there be complete in reality. And then Anselm closes in this fascinating way. He says, Lord, by your Son you command, or rather counsel us, to ask, and you promise that we shall receive so that our joy may be complete. Here he's quoting John 16, 24. And then he says, I ask, Lord. So he's going to get bold here and, and ask himself. He says, I ask, Lord, as you counsel through our admirable counselor, may I receive what you promise through your truth, so that my joy may be complete. God of truth, I ask that I may receive so that my joy may be complete. Just a beautiful passage there. But let me pitch this back to you and ask, what, is, what does Ansel mean? Well, <clears throat> that's uh, those four final chapters I think are where Anselm, and actually the, the final three, really, are where Anselm kind of arrives at his goal. And it's really fun to read the whole book, and you can feel the anguish he's in, uh, even as late as chapter 18, when he has a prayer, when he's just um, completely unsatisfied and only further frustrated that he hasn't gotten to the goal yet. Chapter 23, he identifies the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, as the um, the one good of the soul that he's longing for. And then in chapter 24, he returns to speaking to his soul for the third time. So there's three times in the Proslogion when Anselm reverts from prayer to God to an appeal to his own soul. Uh, the first is in the first paragraph of the whole book, Proslogion chapter 1. The second is halfway through chapter 14. That's when he says, oh, my soul, have you got what you wanted? And then the third is at chapter 24, and here he says, now my soul, you've got it. Um, and, he's, and, it and it's an anticipation of the heavenly joy that he will have in, in possessing God. So um, that's where you have that beautiful vision of heaven as a, a world of love, kind of similar to Jonathan Edwards' sermon in chapters 24 and 25. And he's basically arguing that if, if anything in this world delights us, it will be better in heaven 
because God is the one who created that good thing. All good comes from God. God is the source of all that is good. So we can use the good things of creation like a ladder to look upwards to God as their source. And then in chapter 26, which you quoted from, it's kind of the uh, final um, uh, prayer where he's uh, anticipating that joy and asking to live in it here and now. Gavin, if we read Anselm's, let's just say, for example, you know, for our listeners who are who are thinking, okay, I want to to read Anselm myself, and uh, they they've been helped by your running commentary here. If we were to read Anselm ourselves, uh, certainly, uh, this may be a good starting point with his Proslogion. But are there other works then that you would buy Anselm that you would encourage them to read next? Yes. One of them would be the Monologion, which was the book he wrote prior to the Prostologion, and he thought of this as having many arguments. And and in the Prostologion, he's trying to take those arguments and make them into one argument. But I, the Monologion goes into greater detail on some things. Um, one of them is the Trinity. And I'll say that um, I all my life, I didn't really understand the doctrine of the Trinity until I read that book. <laughs> um, he, maybe I'm a slow learner or something, but I always wondered, you know, why is the number three not an arbitrary thing? Mm. It, why three and not four or two or 30 or 40 or whatever? How, how can the first thing be, be one number and not another number? And one of the things that I finally feel like I got an answer to that in reading through the Monologion, where he's trying to show how the Trinity makes sense. And he talks about, which is a common medieval way of thinking, the the Son of God is the God's word or reason or speech, and the Spirit of God is the love between the Father and the Son. And he, uh, I'll never forget being on a plane, reading through that book, um, and starting to realize, oh, the Trinity, um, there's actually a way to understand why God would be understood in this particular way. Um, and this isn't just random, that, that God is, that we call God three persons. So that is a really great book on theology proper. I'd also say uh, um, Anselm's Why the God-Man is a, a a wonderful book on the atonement, and even other things he wrote. I really encourage people to read his prayers and meditations. Mm. I, I think that's another, it just, when I've taught on Anselm, I find it gives students kind of a different window into Anselm because you see different aspects of his thought in in those prayers and, and meditations. You know, I've had a very similar experience to yours uh, when I have, I, I think I've read it so many times now, I, I need to get a new copy because I've I've just bled all over the book. Uh, his monologion is not just uh, a, a fantastic treatment of the doctrine of God, but treatment of the Trinity in particular, well, it's it's hard to, to, to rival it. Um, I, I think at one point, Anselm goes into great length to not just describe um, these three persons, but like you mentioned, to even articulate what it means for the Son to be begotten from all eternity, to be begotten from from the very essence of the Father. And and uh, Anselm makes this great argument. Uh, to, he moves from that foundational belief to then describe the quality of the Son, in essence, with the Father. 
And then I, I can't help but also think of Anselm's work on the Holy Spirit, on the procession of the Holy Spirit, which of course takes up the uh, that very big controversy over the filioque clause. You know, why should we uh, say that the Spirit proceeds from the Father or from the Father and the Son? But it's not just a treatment of that controversy. Uh, his work on the Holy Spirit actually is really a significant contribution on, well, what does it mean for the Spirit to proceed? And uh, how does this exactly distinguish the Spirit and also support the equality of the Spirit? So all that to say, uh, each and every one of these works by Anselm, and of course you've mentioned others, uh, his, his treatment of the Incarnation as well, all of these works uh, certainly leave us even though many of them are very short, they leave us just with a very rich well to draw from. Gavin, thank you so much for coming on the Credo Podcast to discuss Anselm. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Matthew. Now you can fill up on theology each day by visiting credomag.com. There you will find the latest issues of Credo Magazine with articles on key doctrines of the faith, and regular video interviews with Dr. Matthew Barrett, where he answers some of the toughest theological questions of our day. Be sure to subscribe to Credo Podcasts to join the conversation, a conversation where doctrine matters.